I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. In terms of what the research we actually do and the research by psychologists and economists, the number, even after 10 years after we raised the alarm on this, we still have 95% of psychological studies rely on samples from weird populations. I really rather love the wild theory we're going to explore here today. So here's a fact. Most of what we know about humans today is based on studies and research done on a very particular, narrow and weird subset of the population. That is Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic people, which forms the acronym or more accurately backronym WEIRD. So I can save you looking up backronym. It's basically an acronym conveniently retrofitted to a snazzy, memorable word like weird. So for example, between 2003 and 2007, 96% of participants in social psychology studies were Western and mostly undergraduates at rich American universities. So peak weird. Because as many of you know, that's how university studies are done with human guinea pigs who just happen to be nearby. The implications of this are massive, right? If the whole way we understand ourselves is through what we'd have to agree is very white, privileged, hyper-individualistic lens. Now, Joseph Henrik, a professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard and something of a polymath, is the guy who made this weird discovery and created the backronym. In his book, which took 10 years to research and write, The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous, he makes the point, we in the West are not the normal ones. We are the outliers. We are very much in the minority. And yet what we regard as objective and universal to humanity, what we declare as being normal and good, like whether it's moral or right to have multiple husbands or should we use a clock or lie for a close relative in court, are all based around our ways. It's all just a little bit arrogant. In this week's Wild episode, I've asked Joseph to join us to explain just how unnormal we are and break down how this dominance of weird started with an obscure Catholic Pope sometime around 600 AD, declaring that we were not allowed to marry our cousin. Wild, hey? Welcome to Wild, Joseph. Well, it's great to be with you. Look, we might start with the don't marry your cousin edict, which was issued about 1500 years ago and how this led to the dominance of the West. Can you give us a bit of a tidy overview of that? 
Yeah, incest taboos on cousin marriage might seem like an unusual thing, but under the branch of Christianity that eventually evolved into the Roman Catholic Church, people became increasingly concerned that marriage and sex with cousins, starting with first cousins, but then eventually expanding out to sixth cousins by the year 1000, was something that God didn't like and that needed to be stamped out. So the church began stamping out cousin marriage, which was part of a larger program that began to shrink down the kind of extended kinship-based institutions that were common in Europe and common in lots of parts of the world until recently, and breaking them down into monogamous nuclear families. So the church also ended polygynous marriage, arranged marriages, lots of inheritance rules, corporate inheritance where people inherit as a group, breaking it down to just individuals would inherit with no cousin marriage and monogamous marriage, so nuclear households. So how did this lead to the dominance of the West? Like there was a sort of a branching out, a division of the world at that point in history, right? Yeah. So the case that I make in The Weirdest People in the World is that this is the the proverbial stone that begins down the avalanche. And so it sets this particular set of populations off on a trajectory of societal evolution that we don't see elsewhere in the world. So there have been lots of states and lots of powerful states, but they'd always been under, underpinned both at the kind of lowest levels by, you know, the, the farmers and stuff who raise the food in the society up to the elite levels by people who were webbed together in networks of kinship. And the argument is, is that this set of taboos and other kinds of uh, rules about marriage in the family forced everyone to be monogamous nuclear family. So Europeans in these places were, were, had to build other kinds of institutions. And they ended up building voluntary institutions, voluntary associations like guilds and universities, and they began merging in charter towns. And these institutions began to serve the functions of kinship. So one of the things your, your kin group does is if you break your leg, they take care of you. If you get old, they take care of you. If you're a widow or an orphan, they take care of you. This is based on the fact that they jointly produce, and then people have obligations to help various relatives. But in these voluntary associations, they began to fill those functions. And the monogamous nuclear families were weak, and so they had to figure out ways to govern themselves. So how do you deal with a charter town or a monastery or a university where people are interacting and relating in this way? So you get the emergence of this impersonal prosociality. At the same time, you have the spread of markets and something that historians call the, the commercial revolution. So people begin not only exchanging with people they know and reliable contacts, but they begin exchanging with strangers and writing contracts. So while much of European law seems unsophisticated compared to what we might find in China or the Islamic world, contract law gets quite advanced in these European populations in the high Middle Ages. So you're going down this different track, and eventually this results in things like the Bill of Rights and representative government stuff, but that all starts at a very low level. So there are town councils throughout France and Germany, for example, and England that have these kind of small-scale representative governments at the town level. And it's only, you know, in the 17th century and after that where you begin to see it at the national level when, you know, the English parliament and, and whatnot. What I found really interesting when I read your book is that up until all of this was happening, until there was this divide where the West kind of branched out into these nuclear families and different types of institutions that took the place of tribes, Europe was a bit of a backwater and nobody back then would have predicted that the West, as we call it now, would have risen to prominence like it did. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to fathom. 
Yeah. So that one of the things I introduced the readers to are these Islamic scholars. And so Islamic society around the year 1000 is quite prosperous and there's scholars and there's, you know, they're doing, there's algebras being developed and experimental methods are being developed in, in Central Asia. And so, you know, there's sociology of the Islamic scholars looking around and they talk about the white barbarians to the north, the Danes and the English and the, the black barbarians to the south. And then they, they give some credit to the Chinese, but they're not fully civilized in the view of these Islamic scholars. And they're, they, they like the Persians and the Egyptians and they seem more civilized to them. So, you know, they're kind of judging the world and there's clearly there's no way in which they expected, you know, Europe to be on this rapid ascendancy over the next millennium. Yeah, it's really hard for those of us listening who presumably are mostly from the West, if they can afford the technology to listen to this podcast, to understand that the West wasn't always supreme. But we've kind of grown up thinking that before we go any further, why don't we describe what weird people are? Of course, it's a backronym, which is where you reverse engineer uh, an acronym that, that is catchy. Weird is certainly catchy. Can you describe what a weird person is? Yeah. So weird is this backronym or acronym, which you mentioned, and it stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich and Democratic. And it's really a consciousness raising device that I developed with two friends in social cultural psychology, Steve Heine and Arnon Zion. So a social psychologist at the University of British Columbia. And what we wanted to do was raise the consciousness of researchers in psychology and behavioral economics and related disciplines. Because back when we wrote this, we first coined this in 2010, over 95% of all the research done in these fields was done with students in Western societies or, you know, at best, some sample of some online line sample, for example, of uh, Western population. So we wanted to point out that not only is there lots of interesting psychological variation around the world, but the populations most studied by psychologists and economists are unusual in a global and psychological perspective. So it's, it just meant to remind, to, to kind of create a point of reflection for the psychologists. Well, it busts through all the assumptions. It pretty much gets us questioning all of those mega history books that make assumptions about what humans are meant to be like and what's good, what's morally right. The whole of our historical understanding of humanity is, as you reveal in those studies that were done on a very particular subset of the population. So maybe describe who we are. Why are we weird? What are the difference between us and the rest of the world? Well, so one would be the importance of individualism. So it's really in the beginning of the high middle ages, and I, I make the case that it begins with these family structures and then it's affected by these other processes, that people really begin to cultivate the notion of the individual self you know, when you're out there in the world and you're trying, you need to build all these relationships. So you got to find friends and business partners and mates, and there's no arranged marriage, and you don't have this network of kin ties and cousins you can rely on. So you've got to cultivate something that other people might want to interact with. So you're cultivating attributes that others want and that are unique that set you apart. And so this leads to this kind of particular way of thinking. You're also trying to make them dispositional. So there, you want to be honest or trustworthy across lots of different relationships because you have to deal with strangers. Whereas in societies with kin-based institutions, you're really more focused on what your relationships are. And if you're looking for someone to trust, you don't care if they're trustworthy across all contexts. You care if you're connected to them through a lot of social networks so that they'll be trustworthy with you. And that's the person you care about, the, the, them being trustworthy. That leads to a difference. Another difference is, is shame versus guilt. In the society of intensive kinship, you're very concerned about shame because the violation of any of these obligations or responsibilities you have to this extended kin, kin network can get you shame. 
Also, the behavior by your siblings or cousins that's shameful could also cause you shame. So you're monitoring their behavior because there's kind of this corporate shame. But in the other world, you have guilt because you're trying to cultivate this unique self. So a simple example that might be intuitive for some people is, you know, you might feel guilty about not going to the gym, but really your neighbors don't care whether you go to the gym, right? This is like something you're trying to do for yourself. Even though there's kind of a standard you're living up to, it's not something that everybody's monitoring and will like, you know, think your brother's a bad person because you didn't go to the gym. I think you also talk about things like this sense of accomplishment and aspirations. They differ between the West and the rest of the world. Right. So a simple test you can give people is the I am task. And you ask them to finish the sentence I am with some kind of adjective or, or noun or something. If you give it to, say, American undergraduates, they'll say, I want to be a scientist. I am fascinated by science fiction, you know, something about themselves. I might say I'm a kayaker. Whereas in other places, they'll say, you know, I'm a member of this community. I'm so-and-so's father and I'm so-and-so's brother or so-and-so's cousin. Because they're, they're mapping out the network of relationships because it's very much the relationships and the enduring groups that make them who they are. Even if I was to say I am a scientist, that's not an enduring group. You know, it's, it's a voluntary association. It's not something you're born into. And there's different kinds of social groups. And that's an important distinction. Yeah. And I can start to see how perspective on aspiration really can lead a society to rise according to those neoliberal values, which is how we judge the world today. There's also physical traits that have emerged over the last 1500 years from this divide, you know, between the weirds and the not weirds. I find that fascinating. Can you talk us through a couple of those physical traits? Well, one of the ones I start the book off with is how certain cultural practices shape our brains. So there's a tendency to divide biology and culture. But what we now know from, from lots of work from lots of different areas is that recurrent practices that we do a lot actually shape our brain. They change our biology, even though they don't change our genetics. So one that's all your listeners will have been involved with and have altered their brains through this practice is reading. We grow up, we're trained to read, we learn to read. And when you learn to read, you get a thicker corpus callosum. That's the information highway that connects the two hemispheres of your brain. That means when you hear speech, even though, you know, reading is not about speech, you actually have more whole brain activation for, for spoken sentences. So it actually leads to a difference in how you process information. There's perceptual differences. So if you learn to read English, you have to differentiate your P's and Q's. That creates a kind of perceptual ability. We're not fooled by mirror invariance. And lo lots of animals and, and people who haven't been trained on those kinds of languages ignore the difference between P's and Q's. And some learners have trouble with their P's and Q's because they, or they write their S's backwards or something like that. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, you've picked up on the fact that Westerners, weird people tend to have flat feet. We also tend to have impoverished microbiomes. And of course, that then extrapolates out into our society, doesn't it? It means that we've got all kinds of healthcare issues very, very particular to our history. Yes, that's right. And so another great example of that, this, this permeates a lot of medical science. So medical science has a weird people problem. So one simple example is that chronic heart disease is often associated with having high levels of inflammation. But then Mike Irvin, Hillard Kaplan, and their colleagues studied a group called the Chamane in a remote part of the Bolivian Amazon. And they don't find this relationship at all. And this fits in with a larger theory that if you grow up in a world with lots of uh, helmets, intestinal like parasites, the parasites actually do something to your body that eliminates that link between chronic inflammation and heart disease. They don't have this problem with chronic heart disease. And so, of course, we don't want to reintroduce parasites into our environment because they have lots of health consequences. But it does give us an idea if we could figure out a way to do whatever it is those parasites are doing, we could reduce a lot of the, the problems associated with chronic heart disease. 
microdose some helminths. Exactly. Everybody, everybody grows up in an environment with almost no helminths. So we don't get to see how the biology really works. The other thing that I picked up on that I find fascinating is the Italy paradox. And I think it really shows how your theory plays out. Can you talk us through that? People often think of Italy as the place, you know, it's the home of the Catholic Church. It's where the Pope in Rome is. But Italy actually has a very different history. So northern Italy is under the Carolingian Empire. So the Emperor Charlemagne conquers lots of parts of Europe, including northern Italy. And this is where the church's marriage and family program, including banning cousin marriage and all that sort of stuff, is imposed relatively early on. So the church is working hand in hand with the Carolingian emperors. But meanwhile, in the South, it's variously governed by different Islamic powers, local principalities, and also the Orthodox Church or the the Byzantine Empire under the Orthodox Church. So that leads to all this variation in rates of cousin marriage, even into the 20th century. And we're able to show that the, the provinces with higher cousin marriage in the 20th century give less voluntary blood donations, for example. There's higher corruption. People keep less wealth in banks because they're, they're less trusting. A whole bunch of things you'd expect for, for this variation. Yeah. So if you think of Naples where and the southern part of Italy where the mafia runs riot, your theory explains that. Testosterone levels, they also differ dramatically during the life histories of men from weird societies and men from kin-intensive societies. How so? Yeah. So this is another example of how you can get the biology wrong if you just study weird people. So studying societies that have monogamous marriage, researchers have shown that when men get married and then again when they have children, they suffer decreases in testosterone. And this is often thought to be associated with a general decline in testosterone that takes occurs as men age. But actually, this is an adaptive response to, to a need to pair bond and take care of children. So the more you hand the father the baby to take care of, the more a decline in testosterone you'll see. But in lots of societies, including polygynous societies around the world today, men don't suffer a decline when they get married because if you're in a polygynous society, you get married, you're still on the marriage and mating market. You're just looking for the second or third wife. And then when you have kids, there's often norms where the man doesn't even do anything. I mean, he might have multiple wives, so there might not even be time uh, because you can also run in parallel when you have multiple wives. So you're having multiple children at the same time. These men don't experience these declines in testosterone. So there's actually an end, or sort of a cultural endocrinology that depends on the marriage system. And we have great parallels in birds. So birds are, have all the same patterns across different bird species, except of course, only humans have these institutions that have evolved in different societies that lead to these different hormonal responses. Yeah. And of course, we assume a certain way, but forget that you know the bulk of the world do not have these characteristics or do not have these particular health consequences or cultural impacts. And I guess it really does beg, what proportion of the world is weird? The case of monogamous versus polygynous marriage, traditionally, so, you know, go to 1500, 85% of human societies had allowed men to take additional wives. It's vanishingly small, the number of societies that institutionalize women taking additional husbands. So there's, there's no symmetry there. As European powers began to spread all over the world, they brought with them norms about monogamous marriage. So, for example, in Japan, monogamous marriage is imported during the Meiji Restoration in the 1880s. It arrives in China in the 1950s, in Nepal in 1963, Turkey. Well, actually, there's still a lot of polygyny in Turkey, but officially in the law in in the 1920s. I'm reluctant to put a percentage on it because we really tried to measure things quantitatively. And so, for example, we can explain a lot of the the psychological variation around the world by looking at how long each country's population has been influenced by the Roman Catholic Church. 
And that depends on, you know, when colonialism happened and also how many Europeans moved there from what part of Europe. And so it's a bit of a complicated calculation, although we, you know, we tried to make it as best we could. So it's really a continuous variable and with different kinds of influence. So ebbs and flows backwards and forwards, I suppose, some of those variables. But I suppose you probably can give a bit of an answer as to what percentage of world studies make the assumption based on weird protocols, weird behaviors, and so on. In terms of what the research we actually do and the research by psychologists and economists, the number, even after 10 years after our, we raised the alarm on this, we still have 95% of psychological studies rely on uh, samples from weird populations. Americans mostly, and then various European, Canadian, Australian population. Yes. The point is the bulk of the world is not being represented in these theories that then inform those big books that, you know, the sapiens and so on. Well, and especially books that, you know, you'll read books about decision-making or psychology or something. And those are the ones to, I think, worry about the most. So, you know, people tell you about how humans make decisions. That's almost all how, how weird people make decisions. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One other thing that I picked up on actually was the example of the unpaid New York parking tickets from UN diplomats who pass through the city. Can you explain how that works? Because that's super weird <laughs> in so many ways. Well, so it's a, it's a fun national experiment. So, so diplomats and diplomatic delegations from all over the world come to New York City to be part of the UN. 90% of these folks live within one mile of the UN compound. So they're all facing the same busy, crowded, traffic-ridden New York streets, and they all face the NYPD. And what the NYPD does is they, they ticket cars regardless of the diplomatic plates. But before 2002, diplomats had diplomatic immunity from parking tickets. There was variability in how folks from different countries, how much they would take advantage of this, of this uh, diplomatic immunity. So two economists accumulated all the data on all of the unpaid parking tickets from different countries around the world. And in our data, we're able to attach those countries to this kinship intensity measure, which is how much have monogamous nuclear families versus these big extended families. And we find that diplomats, whether we look at the delegation or the actual diplomat, him or herself, and we try to you know, see if that's related to this kinship intensity, we find that people from countries with high kinship intensity have many more parking tickets. And you can think of this as like, I don't know, I kind of called it impersonal honesty. You have this opportunity to kind of get away and, and park wherever you want and, and do you take advantage of it. And it's kind of about how you think about strangers and your kind of responsibility to the anonymous other. 
it's a very telling example. And I guess a lot of what this is all saying, and as you say, your main aim was to point out these biases and problematic approaches being done in particularly in the social sciences based on these assumptions that we're all the same. You know, we're all this particular type of person. We make decisions the same way and and so on. So what kind of problematic assumptions have then led to problems in science, but also problems I, I would imagine in diplomacy and world politics. Like how have you seen this play out in a really problematic way? So if you look at something like the when the US invaded Iraq, you know, they thought they were going to be greeted as liberators, my countrymen. You know, of course they weren't. And then they tried to impose various American laws in Iraq. So the funniest one, or funny, funny sad, is they tried to use the Maryland driving code, the the, the traffic laws from Maryland in Baghdad. And it turns out folks in Baghdad don't drive like folks in Maryland. And so it created all kinds of problems. You know, they tried to restart the financial markets using American rules. And so you have a misfit between people's psychology and the kinds of a formal official rules you bring in. And what you need are institutions that are adapted to the local psychology so that they can complement each other. It really goes a long way to explaining why there are parts of the world that call the West supremely arrogant. And you can understand why when you look at this sort of history and the fact that, yeah, we've imposed our thinking on them, assuming that, of course, you want the same traffic rules as us. Right. And I mean, one of the things that comes up is, you know, people really do have a different morality in the sense, do they think relationships are important? So, for example, should everyone get the same penalty or if you, you know, if you punch them, say you engage in battery or should the penalty for battery vary on who you're punching. So typical Chinese law, you know, a son hits a father, it's one penalty. A father hits a son, it's, well, no penalty. So it really matters who, who you're hitting. Yeah. I think also use the example of, and this is sort of a moral quandary, of whether you would defend your sister or a close relative in court, you would back up a lie that they're telling to ensure their freedom. And that, of course, differs, doesn't it, between the two, yeah. the two realms? So it's a, it's a scenario called the passenger's dilemma. And the idea is it's pitting two virtues together. So it's a virtue to be loyal to family and friends. And it's a virtue to tell the truth in court, right? In this impersonal institution that, you know, helps our society operate. And people really report differences. So some people in some places think you always go with the friend, you take care of your own, you know, who cares about the formal institution? And others in places really think you should, your friend doesn't have any right to expect you to lie in court. And it's very, and that's a kind of sacred rule. And you get the full range of variation between that. But it's not hard to take a step and think that that really affects how the institutions function. Oh, you can also understand if somebody arrives from another country and they've got to actually install themselves into the legal framework, you can just see how what is deemed morally right or wrong varies massively, like it's diametrically opposed. I suppose it also, reading your book also led me to think about what we could actually learn. I became acutely and uncomfortably aware of my arrogance and you know all the assumptions that I've been writing on. And I love discussing this stuff. I read all of those books about decision-making and I've done all of that throughout my career. But it really got me thinking about whether there was flip side, something we could learn from the non-weird people, the bulk of the world. And it's particularly at a time in history where neoliberalism and all that individualism that characterizes the weird among us has run rampant 
and has kind of landed us in a fair bit of strife. In fact, landed the entire world in a lot of strife. So the overconsumption, the destruction of the planet, the fragmentation that's happening politically. And of course, democracy is also really suffering because of this individualism and the destruction of some of those collective mechanisms that hold our individualism to account. So do you feel that weirdness is running into trouble and that it might be time for us to turn around and go, oh, maybe the rest of the world has some approaches we could learn from. Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like there's lots to learn about the importance of community and the importance of relationships. I mean, one of the things that individualism tends to lead to, at least in some circumstances, are, well, suicide. So that's some of the work I discuss in the book that you can, at least under some conditions, get higher suicide rates and also less happiness. So the happiest people in the world are people who live in rich countries, but have big families. It's a happy compromise. They they take the best of both worlds. You, you get the you get the material security that comes with being in a society that's built on the logic of small families. But then you you get to enjoy all the social relationships and benefits that come with a large family. So so that's an important thing is thinking about communities and drawing relationships and that sort of thing. Although what I see politically, so we've been analyzing the case in the U.S. and trying to figure out. I mean, a simple way we've tried to measure it is to look at which counties voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020. And what we find is that places with a less universalistic morality are really the places that voted for him. This is over and above race and age and all the kinds of things that political uh, scientists normally look at to predict voting. So this, the moral psychology matters. And we found that it's been increasing, uh, moral parochialism has been increasing in some counties based on weather shocks and residential mobility. So people have stopped moving around as much in the US. And when you stay in the same place, you're you know still together with your high school, the people you went to high school with in your 50s, there's more parochialism and less universalism. Right. So is that a little bit of a paradox there? Or is it a little bit of a counter to the way we've been moving in terms of certain kinship versus broader institutional frameworks? Because what you're saying is in those counties or those parts of America, they're turning towards some of the behaviours of the non-weird world, which is to turn to closer relationships internal type of thinking as opposed to an external type of thinking. However, it hasn't got rid of the individualism, has it, in those areas, I would imagine. Well, so it, what it does is it makes uh, morality more local. So something simple like charitable giving. So, you, so in, one ex, in one experiment, an economist gave folks in different Americans in different counties the chance to give to the local fire department or poor or starving kids in Africa. And basically, it's the, the amount of moral universalism is predicted with giving to the poor kids in Africa as opposed to the, the local fire department. So people are still generous. It's just that they're generous to a more people who feel closer to them, literally physically closer to them. Yeah. So that's one case. But the, the, one of the key ideas about this notion of kinship and relations is that it's really powerful. It's really anchored in human nature. So it reasserts itself. So of course, during the, you know, the Trump administration, he was installing relatives and son-in-laws and stock in the government with with people he had personal relationships with, which is, you know, that's the old way of doing things, right? As opposed to meritocracy and that, those kinds of things. Is it so much that we should judge that as wrong and abnormal, or is it far more nuanced, you know, because that kind of kinship behavior, we deem it dictatorial, we deem it parochial, whereas other cultures go, no, it's cohesive. 
and it actually can can lead to greater stability. In fact, in many cases, more democracy. Almost like there's a schism, isn't it, in your country and my country. The alternative is playing out, but it's clashing with some of the ways of the weird world that we've had for the last 1,500 years. One of the things that I, that I discuss in the book are these research with these CEOs at the World Economic Forum and just asking them about whether they hire relatives. And it's clear that folks in lots of places like to hire relatives and they think it's a smart thing to do. They think it's a, you get you a good trustworthy employee that you know is not going to steal from you or, or leave soon. And so it's just a different way of viewing things. Another really big thing that I think is emerging at the moment around the world is that as we face these very complex issues and we seek solutions, innovation is something that we're going to need a lot more of, a lot more creativity and thinking that goes goes outside the box. The studies that I researched for my most recent book, from what I gather, the West has become far less innovative over the last couple of decades for a whole bunch of reasons. But can you just talk about where innovation and creativity sits in this whole equation? I think, I think you point out that there's a correlation with the notion of this collective brain and innovation. That's right. So that's one of the ideas I've developed over my last two books is the notion that most innovations are really recombinations of existing ideas. And the way you bring uh, ideas together is to have a large population capable of producing more ideas, and then lots of social interconnections between individuals, which can bring ideas together. And that's fueled and fertilized by having trust in others, by a psychology of individualism where you want to invent stuff to, to set yourself apart. It's fueled by immigration because immigrants bring in new ideas. So you want to bring together people with maximum cognitive diversity so that different ideas, different ways of doing things have a chance of meeting each other. So in analyzing, say, the U.S. patent data over the last 150 years, it's clear that Counties which have more cognitive diversity are more innovative. They produce more patents. And having immigrants is, is a huge burst to that. It's one of the uh, wellsprings of, of American ingenuity. So that suggests that we almost need to use both models here. We need to use the weird world's ability to bring in strangers, incorporate non-kin minds into problem solving, while at the same time we need to incorporate this collective spirit cooperation and less free will and individualism, it sort of shows how we probably need to meet somewhere in the middle. Is that where your studies take you? Do you go to that extent? Do you sort of see solutions or better ways of going forward based on your studies? Well, the main ideas that I've kind of put out there that might have relevance to this is the notion of, well, one is recognizing, uh, or I guess having humility in our ability to construct institutions allowing lots of different groups to try different institutions and then taking the best results. I don't see much evidence for the success of central planners, but I do think that lots of different groups can try different stuff and we can learn from the groups that are successful. So that's kind of a Darwinian approach to institutional design. Uh, it's, you know, it's also a more, a more humble approach to institutional design. And then, I mean, I guess the other thing is having some intergroup competition. So I think the U.S. innovation has been stifled by, in, in the last 20 years, by the dominance of a few big players who gobble up any small actors. And so I can show you evidence, actually, that when you have lots of competition among firms, for example, you actually get more trust because the individuals in the firms have to cooperate and trust each other. Otherwise, they disappear. Whereas if you have a few large players, then there's not that need to trust and build cooperation within the group because there's no competitor that's going to beat you. So 15 years on from that obscure Catholic pope 
creating this edict that we don't marry our cousins. Do you feel that maybe we weirdos uh, will keep dominating or do you feel that that sort of era is starting to wane? Yeah. So one of the characteristics of weird thought is analytic thinking. And analytic thinkers are characterized by they tend to see things in lines and they continue on, right? But the picture I have is much more of a kind of Darwinian picture in the sense that the West created a bunch of institutions, they spread all over the world, but now they're being recombined in new ways and they're creating new kinds of things and going in new directions that we don't know how it's all going to cash out, but Japan imported tons of institutions from first Europe and then the US after World War II. The society there is clearly not a Western society in the normal sense because it's combined all this stuff that's traditionally Japanese with all the stuff they took from the West. Same thing with China. So they instituted a bunch of U.S. civil codes and other kinds of ways of doing things. But clearly China's not politically like the West. So they're, they've created a new kind of thing that was not the traditional Chinese state, but it's also not a Western. So then, you know, there's all these other experiments going on around the world. And, you know, India would be another example where kinship is still really important. Arranged marriages are still a thing. And yet they've brought in a lot of weird (laughs) Western ideas. What you're saying is that there'll be more of a meeting in the middle, cherry picking the best of both worlds going forward. And and new directions we can't predict would be also what I would say. Awesome. New directions. We might need a few of those and especially a lot more innovation happiness. And I think I love that word that you use, the the humility. The world would be a much better place right now if there was a lot more humility, particularly coming from the West. Having sort of deep dived and researched your life and what you've done and just hearing you now speak across such a span of topics, you're something of a polymath. I suspect you've got an interest in a lot of things. So what are you working on now, Joseph? Like you're interested in everything, but what are you sort of directing it at now? Yeah. So two big areas right now I'm working on. One is uh, in the Weird People book, the idea was really, I was using contemporary psychological measures and I was trying to explain them using this historical data. I talked about the church and about kinship. What I'm doing now is I'm trying to use textual data. So we figured out ways to extract psychological measures from the U.S. news, from U.S. newspaper corpora going back hundreds of years, British newspapers, and then the Latin corpora. So we're hoping to be able to map psychology across space and time, possibly going back a few thousand years, but certainly a few hundred. So that'll give us whole new ways of thinking about this and looking at change through time. Uh, And then the other, my big book project is called uh, Collective Minds. Uh, There I want to get into some of the stuff we talked about, about what drives innovation, but I want to go another level deeper and ask, where do our standards from evidence come from? And what constitutes a good reason or what constitutes a good argument? What's our ontology? Like, What do we even assume exists in the world? Do you believe in spirits, vitamins, germs, atoms, or other invisible stuff, right? And and much of that we just get, right? So some of us believe in germs and some of us believe in spirits, right? And that that hinge a lot of where you go in terms of solving a problem depends on which of those you think is relevant. Gosh, that's very relevant as we are still ensconced in COVID land and, you know, navigating the differences between people who are anti-vaxxers and those who, I suppose, go along with what governments are requiring um, for us to progress. A very, very interesting topic to explore. I don't know how you fit it all in with all your other work, but I'm glad you do because I think these kinds of discussions, these nuanced discussions are so important. You know, it's not black or white and that's very weird thinking. Binary thinking, I feel, is really our undoing right now in history. So these kinds of discussions are awesome. I am so glad 
you got to join all of us here and explain these weird theories. I find great comfort in knowing I'm weird and I'm also not right. <laughs> it's a relief. <laughs> right. Okay. Good to be with you. Look, to be honest, I've come away from this chat and from reading Joseph's book, which is in bookstores now, really wanting to have a robust check on my privilege. Any reminder for us to be humble is a great thing. Ditto any ways of living that could get us all a bit more collective wouldn't be a bad idea either, especially if we want to innovate and be happy as a starting point. It's all provided me with a bit of a note to self as I interview various guests here on this podcast in the future and as I do research for my projects, including a book that I'll be starting soon. Did this theory emanate from the assumptions of and studies done on a bunch of arrogant Western weirdos? Anyway, it's something to sit with. Until next time, stay wild. 